Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. I have been dreading this week's podcast because last week something amazing happened during the episode. In fact, that's been happening in several episodes of late. And what that is, is that I'm learning right along with you. The things that have been coming to light during the episodes while I'm studying with you has just been amazing. And in particular, last week, we were exploring Revelation 13 and some new perspectives came to light in regards to giving life to the image of the beast and what that means. And so what I expected to explain to you is not what I actually explained to you because it seemed that the Holy Spirit was giving something new in the moment that we were studying. And so now I have the unenviable task of explaining what I originally set out to explain and reconciling that with what the Lord showed in the episode last week. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And we'll see where that goes and what comes out of that. Okay. Now, one point that I intended to include in last week's episode, but I didn't remember to do it during the episode, was to re-emphasize something that I've said ever since episode number two, and that is that my purpose in this podcast is not to redefine doctrine. I'm not intending to speak hermeneutically, but to speak homiletically. In other words, I'm just telling stories and making comparisons and trying to nurture in a way that helps you understand things without really getting into doctrinal details. And so I really wanted to emphasize that in last week's episode because I know that this topic of Revelation 13 really can come into this area of doctrine. In particular, obviously, for example, we have the beasts that are described in the chapter, and the identification of those beasts, for example, is something that many people have studied and have come to sound conclusions on, and that's all fine and good, but it isn't my intention to dig into those things in this podcast partly because I don't want to alienate anybody that might have views that are different than the views that I have on those particular points. And instead, I just want to concentrate in this podcast on the things that this podcast is about, which is how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. 
And it's my hope that you can connect the dots within your own framework of understanding. And if there's any refinement that needs to be made in that sense, that you can do that on your own or through the guidance of the Holy Spirit in your own life and in your own study. And in that way, I want this podcast to be more of a uniting thing than something that serves to divide. I am a strong believer in the importance of doctrine and the importance of having pure doctrine, that is doctrine that is sound and accurate and correct according to the Word of God. But it just isn't the purpose of this podcast to really delve into those things. I don't feel that's my calling in particular. There are other people who I believe are more so called for that purpose than me. And I have learned an incredible amount from others. And I would only like to share some of the most basic, most universal concepts or understandings of these related passages of the Bible in the way that they relate to Bitcoin or the topics that we are discussing. And so that's kind of where I meant to go with the study of Revelation 13. And I suppose that's where we can start in this episode. And that's by looking at how the image of the beast has been understood in the most advanced sense today, aside from what we discovered in last week's episode. So let's just go back to the Bible and we'll just resume reading at verse 13 of chapter 13. And uh, just for context, remember this is speaking about the second beast of the two beasts that are described in this chapter. And it says, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And that's referring to the first beast that was introduced in this chapter. So... The point here is that this is the first mention of the image of the beast. And we talked in last week's episode about the importance of this beast and its image and mark that anyone who receives the image or the mark or the number of the beast is slated to eternal death, eternal destruction by God. That's how important this warning is. And therefore, this warning in the book of Revelation is one of the most crucial warnings to pay attention to, because if you get it wrong, you lose all of eternity. The cost is immense. And that's why God put so much into this vision that we have received in the form of the book of Revelation, because he cares that much that we understand these things and that we make the right decisions to honor him and to be worthy of the eternal life that only he can grant. Life in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, where the people of God can partake again of the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. It's a restoration 
of all things that were degraded under the curse of sin. So the entire Bible is about this story of mankind going from the fall, falling out of harmony with God by disobedience, by eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And the entire Bible makes this round trip through the patriarchal times, through the times of the prophets, through the cross and the Christian era, through the judgment, and then ultimately to the restoration of Eden, where mankind can again walk and talk in the presence of God in complete peace and harmony, having his sins forgiven and being restored to the wholeness of a life of obedience to the will of God. That's what the Bible is all about. And that's what the Christian experience and the human experience in general is all about. And the book of Revelation, in giving this last warning against the mark of the beast, the image of the beast, and the number of the beast, is of crucial importance for the last generation, not just for their own salvation, but even for much more than that. Okay, so now we come to verse 15, which is the verse that really took on a new meaning in the last episode. But right now I want to back up a little bit and kind of explain what this means in a different setting. Verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, what I want to focus on at this point is that the image of the beast was enabled to speak, and that this speaking seems to cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So, in prophetic symbolism, speaking of a beast... Now, when you understand that a beast is a political power, a nation-state, for example, then you can understand that speaking of a beast has to do with the speaking of a nation, not speaking of its figureheads, per se, but speaking through its laws, because it is through the laws that a nation speaks. And it is also through its laws that a nation causes people to behave certain ways. And so when it speaks here of the image of the beast speaking and causing that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, it can be understood that this nation, of which it says he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that this nation would pass laws on behalf of the image of the beast, because it's the image that should both speak and cause. And the best students of the Bible, in my opinion, I'm biased, through studying the Word of God, were able to recognize that these particular laws that are mentioned here are the laws that were passed, especially in the United States of America, the second beast, in the year 2015. And what were those laws? They were the legal precedents set by the Supreme Court by overturning DOMA, the Defensive Marriage Act, 
and therefore protecting the so-called right to engage in same-sex marriage in the United States of America on a national level. And this equates to exactly what happened in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Lot. And I'm going to give a little more context to this in a moment, but let's just go back to that story because I really want you to see this connection. So let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verse 4. And this is the story about when the angels came to visit Sodom and Lot brought them into his house because he knew the character of the people of Sodom and he wanted to protect these innocent men. And then it comes in verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And so what this verse shows is that the sin of sodomy had penetrated Sodom completely, both old and young. So there was no longer a generation that was clean in Sodom. It says all the people from every quarter. So there was not only no generation that was clean, but there was no area of the city that was clean either. The entire city had become a city of Sodomites. And I think we don't need to read that in the Bible, the act of sodomy is defined as an abomination to God, one that is worthy of eternal death. In other words, any person who lowers themselves to that level of unclean behavior has a conscience so severed, they are so removed from God, that there is no way for them to ever be reconciled to God. Now, it's not on me to claim that as a judgment. And if there are any homosexuals listening to this, I simply, based on the Bible, urge you to stop that practice. It's not about how you were made or how your brain is wired. There are some things you don't have control over, but your actions, your behavior, you do have control over. And what makes humans more than mere animals is the fact that we have the capacity to choose our response to the stimulus in our environment. And we are not obliged to merely react to external or internal stimulus as animals do. We have a choice how we behave. And I would simply appeal to any homosexual that I meet to simply turn away from the behaviors that the Bible condemns, that God condemns, that are abominable to God according to his word. And if that means you live a life of celibacy or whatever that means, that's not the end of the world. It may be a sacrifice. It may be difficult. It may be a lot of things. But many, many other people have crosses to carry in their own lives for whatever reasons. Some people are handicapped physically. That's a cross they have to bear. Some people have past experiences that they've messed up their life and they have to live with the consequences. It's a cross they have to bear. That's okay. God gives grace to each one according to his need to bear their own cross, just as Jesus bore his. That's okay. And we can have compassion on each other 
knowing that life is not easy and we each have our struggles. And Christians, because of the moral standard of the Bible, are generally called to celibacy except in the context of marriage anyway. And not everyone gets married. Some people get married late. People don't always stay married. So there are many, many people, Christians, who live a pure life without sex. Okay, that's not the biggest sacrifice in the world. Look at the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made in giving his life, even risking his eternal life, not knowing for sure whether his sacrifice would be accepted, just doing it by faith, trusting in God that his sacrifice would make a difference in your life and that you might be saved, that many would be saved as a result. Yeah, he did that in faith. That was a much harder sacrifice than most of us are ever called to make. And so there's no room for hate of homosexuals in the Christian religion. There's only room for compassion, but also for recognizing the basic Christian principle of adapting our behavior to the standards of God. Okay? But those who refuse to obey God are taking the side of the serpent like Eve in the Garden of Eden. And without repentance, such ones will ultimately face the eternal fire, for which the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah stood as a symbol. Okay? All right. So when we understand that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, verse 15, as we read, that the image of the beast is given this power to speak and cause, and we understand that that's having to do with legalities and with the Supreme Court speaking or defining more clearly the meaning of the laws and how they are to be understood and applied, and that this court speaks for the entire nation and therefore it corresponds very well with the experience of Sodom where the people came from every quarter. We can begin to see how that really took shape. And this is something that was so obvious, you know, a whole nation, a, a formerly Christian nation, or shall I say, a nation that's Christian in name only, completely abandons the foundations of the Bible to have its Supreme Court turn completely against the Bible in one of the most clear and non-negotiable things, such as the abomination of sodomy. To see that happen in the United States was so obvious that people everywhere, Christians everywhere across the nation were recognizing this as, oh my goodness, we're going to have fire raining down on our heads any moment now because we have crossed the line. And that's something that should be remembered right now as there is war in Israel and as the United States gets involved in that. You don't know where this is going to go exactly, but I think everyone knows that the potential exists to kick off a nuclear war, a nuclear world war, in which literally fire would be raining down on the United States, raining down from heaven because of the nature of intercontinental ballistic missiles that they fly so high that they literally fly into the stratosphere and then re-enter the atmosphere. So they come from heaven, so to speak, and rain fire down on the earth. God does not necessarily use natural means. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, yes. It was 
a divinely orchestrated destruction. Some even piece together the evidence of the sulfur that still remains in that area and infer that perhaps a volcano was responsible for launching these sulfuric stones into the atmosphere, which then in turn rained back down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That could be a possibility, or it could have been something of a completely supernatural nature that's, you know, God is powerful enough. He doesn't lack the ways to do things. But one of the ways that he accomplishes his purposes is simply through the agency of mankind. Just like he allowed the kingdom of Babylon to conquer the Israelites historically as his judgment upon them, he can also use enemy nations to fight against the United States and rain fire down on them that way. That's a perfectly valid way to understand God's judgments on a nation for turning against his word and for committing abomination on a national scale. All right, so this is an interpretation that has been arrived at and which is sound and which I intended to explain in the previous episode, but instead it seemed like the Spirit was giving new insight into the meaning of giving life unto the image of the beast. And so we kind of went on a completely different tangent, which I believe is also correct and not in conflict with what I've just presented to you in this episode. And the Bible has many layers of meaning. Prophecies have many layers of meaning. And oftentimes prophecies have multiple fulfillments in different contexts, in different times, on different timescales. And sometimes when one interpretation seems to be in conflict with another, that conflict might be superficial. The Word of God is multidimensional, we could say. And when we understand things in multiple dimensions, we can understand how they are connected and related, even though when looking at the picture in a single-dimensional way, the view of two different interpretations may seem to be incompatible or in conflict when that is not the case. And so that's why I was a little bit dreading this week's episode, because what I want to do in this episode is connect the dots for you to show you how this interpretation of the image of the beast being the concept of sodomy legalized nationwide in the United States is entirely compatible with the things that we discovered in last week's episode regarding the image of the beast being associated with central bank digital currencies, just like how Nebuchadnezzar's image, which all the leaders of the nation were called to worship, his golden image, which was a financial statement, a symbol and embodiment of the wealth of Babylon. We saw all those things in last week's episode, and those things are also correct but they're coming from a different angle. They're looking at the prophecy from a different dimension, so to speak. Okay, and so it should also be mentioned here that the image of the beast is the contrary of the image of God. The beast is, as described in this same chapter, 
an extension or agency of the devil, where it says in verse 2 of Revelation 13, it says, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. This is in reference to the first beast, the one of which the image is made. And so we can see here that the image of the beast is a diabolical thing. It is an image of the dragon's power and seat and authority which were given to the beast, okay? And that stands in direct confrontation to the power and authority of God, who also has an image described in the Bible, the image of God. And let's go back to that in the book of Genesis. In Revelation, we have the description of the image of the beast. But in Genesis, we have the description of the image of God. And this comes in verse 26 of chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. And God said, let us make man in our image. That means mankind, man and woman. It doesn't say, let us make a man. It says, let us make man. That means mankind in our image, after our likeness. This is God speaking. So it's the image of God, the likeness of God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. This is verse 27. In the image of God created he him, male and female, together the, the, the human species, mankind, male and female, created he them. So there you have in those two verses repeated several times, emphasized, in our image. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, created he him, male and female, created he them. Not male and male, not female and female, but male and female together as the human race, mankind, male and female. In that way, he created them. And verse 28 goes on to speak about being fruitful and multiplying, replenishing the earth, filling the earth, subduing it. It's about reproduction, about multiplication. And that can only happen from a natural point of view with male and female, not male and male or female and female. And so right here in the first chapter of the whole Bible, we have the foundation of all truth regarding the image of the beast. Because if you want to understand the counterfeit, you need to understand the original. And that's what's laid out right here. When a person gives in to the pressures, whether internal or external, to behave in a homosexual fashion, to practice sodomy, when a person gives up his choice to choose to respond to stimulus, internal or external, in a way that is in accordance with the Word of God, when a person gives that up and yields themselves to the lower nature, to the animal nature, and fulfills their lusts and desires in an unclean way, in a way that's contrary to the way that God created male and female, and in a way that is called abomination to him, when a person lowers themselves to that degree, they are giving up 
in a certain sense, what it means to be human. And they're lowering themselves to the level of a beast, of a mere animal. And if anyone that's listening to this is feeling regret or wishing they had not gone down that path, I simply say, repent and stop doing those behaviors and leave the matter with God as to your salvation. But the point that I wanted to make by coming back to the book of Genesis here is how the Bible clearly shows in this first chapter of the Bible that the story of creation that everyone, every Christian knows, which is so basic, which is so foundational, every child should have the benefit of a mother and a father. And this is just so foundational to the fabric of natural society in general and to the fabric of Christianity in particular, that by contrast, it makes the case for what the image of the beast in Revelation means so clear that it is about the behaviors of sodomy and about the laws, the speaking of this image that cause. Now that's what now now we come to the causing. Okay, so let's turn back to Revelation chapter 13, and it says that he had power, the second beast had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak. So the laws were passed in 2015 in the United States. And by the way, in many other countries, some before, some after that, but to a large degree, the United States influenced many other countries to follow the same path. So, but it says that the image of the beast should both speak and cause. So what did this sodomy law in the United States cause? Did it cause people to worship the image of the beast? Did it cause people, businesses, bakers, artists? Did it cause them to have to bow down to the homosexual agenda? Yes, indeed. The press was full of it during those times. Cake makers were raked over the coals for refusing to bake a cake for a homosexual couple. Artists were raked over the coals for refusing to develop websites for homosexual couples. Photographers were raked over the coals for refusing to photograph homosexual weddings. That's how the image of the beast not only spoke by the laws that were passed in the nation, but also people were caused, as it says, as many as would not worship the image of the beast. So those who would not bow down to the homosexual agenda, those were the ones that were caused to be killed. And again, killed here is symbolic. They were put out of business. They were silenced. There was the woman who was a clerk who refused to process the wedding certificates, the wedding licenses of homosexual couples. She lost her job. She was persecuted. These are the ones who were killed in a figurative sort of way, put out of their jobs, imprisoned, silenced, harassed, made a public spectacle because they would not worship the image of the beast. Okay? Now, let's tie this together with what we learned in last week's episode, where we understood, I understood for the first time ever, that giving life, which in the original language is breath, that giving breath, which in the Bible is synonymous to spirit, that giving spirit unto the image of the beast, 
and we have understood in recent episodes, emphasized over and over, that the spiritual aspect, giving spirit, the spiritual aspect is about the non-physical. It's about, when we talk about a monetary system, like the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the golden image that represents gold as the financial foundation of the kingdom of Babylon, anciently, that in the context of a financial system, giving spirit to the system, giving it a metaphysical form, gold is very physical, but here it is made metaphysical, it is made spiritual, it is made abstract, it is made immaterial, and that represents the central bank digital currencies, or digital currencies in general, that are not physical. They are mere information, mere ones and zeros in the computer systems. But what's different about central bank digital currencies in contrast to Bitcoin, which we've understood throughout this podcast as being a spiritual monetary system for the same reasons, that it has no physical component, no material aspect in the real world. The difference with CBDCs is that they are centralized. They are under a central power, just like the image of the beast, just like the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. The gold was under his power as king over the nation because he had control of the vast amount of gold in the kingdom and ultimately the taxes and dues that came from all over the kingdom supplied the king with the financial resources to operate the kingdom. And this is the general principle by which all governments operate today. They amass the wealth that is generated by the people through taxation, through inflation. And more recently, it's gone heavier on the inflation side. But in these ways, the governments amass the wealth from the people. And that centralized control of the wealth of the nation is what gives the government its power and its ability to do the things that it does, to build its armies, to go to war, to enforce its strength, to enforce its will by its own strength. That's the centralized monetary system. That's how the centralized monetary system works. And so giving life to the image of the beast, creating central bank digital currencies, which are in their very name centralized and which have no tie to anything physical, meaning that they can be inflated at the will of the government without any consequence. There's no gold standard holding them back or anything like that. We understood that that's what it means to give life to the image of the beast, to the financial system of the beast, the gold. So how is that connected with sodomy and with the laws that cause those who don't worship the image to be killed? It's simply what everybody is warning about in regards to the central bank digital currencies. And I talked about this in recent episodes as well, that when the money is made entirely digital, it's wonderful, right? It's so convenient. You can just go to the store, just hold your phone next to the terminal, and the payment happens contactlessly, smoothly, fast, everything. It's great, right? It's great until you understand what we talked about, about how the bank rules have changed so that banks can close off your account, deny you access to 
quote-unquote, your money for something as small as offending somebody on social media. You saw how the trucker protest was handled. They were demonstrating in a peaceful way, and yet their bank accounts were frozen. They couldn't buy their lunch, so to speak. They couldn't buy fuel for their trucks. I mean, you know, their finances were restricted. And with the central bank digital currency, that just becomes so much easier and automatable. And with AI, artificial intelligence added to the picture, one can easily imagine that the AI is simply going to react to what you post on digital media, associate that with your bank account, lock your money as soon as you go against what the AI determines is appropriate, and boom, you say the wrong word and no lunch for you, and then try appealing the decision of the AI. You can imagine how that's going to go. You know, the AI is supposed to be the smart one. It has access to more data, and the decisions that it makes are potentially more accurate than the decisions that a human being who is subjective can make. So if you are going to appeal such a decision, good luck. That's the dystopia that is coming, that is on the doorstep, that we see fulfilling this verse right now in real time. That spirit or this spiritual, non-physical aspect is being given to the financial system through the invention of central bank digital currencies. And you can see how that directly ties into quote-unquote hate speech against homosexuals or those who hold homosexual views or those who are sympathetic to them. One word against LGBT on social media and boom, your bank account is cut off. Imagine living in a world where you no longer have free speech. I mean, really, I mean enforced instantly by AI. That's pretty effective killing of as many as would not worship the image of the beast. It doesn't get more effective than that. So now, do you see how what we explored in last week's episode about the spiritual or spiritualistic aspect, the spiritualization or spiritualism of the monetary system, the golden image of Babylon, how that is intrinsically connected to what the image of the beast as the practice of sodomy really is. It's all talking about the same thing, but from different angles. It's a multidimensional prophecy. Okay, wow. I mean, I think we did it. I think we explained it and harmonized it. And I hope that came across clearly and in an understandable way. Okay, so now I would like to kind of take this idea of central bank digital currencies and how that is the new slavery that the world is going into. And I want to take you to a passage in the Bible that I think speaks very much to what is happening in that context. And this is something that I actually wanted to cover in last week's episode as well, but things just didn't go in such a way that it fit in the episode. So, but I think it's important and worthy to cover. So let's just go back to the Old Testament and let's turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 21. And we're just going to look here at the story of Manasseh. It says in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign 
and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And I won't read all of this, but let's read some of it. Verse 2, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So, interesting, you know, in the context of the war in Israel right now, um, many people have kind of a wrong concept of the way that Israel historically, anciently, obtained their right to the land of Canaan. And that's because the way that modern Israel has obtained, quote-unquote, their right to the land of Israel is a bit, we could say, unethical, okay? If you don't know about the whole Zionist movement, you can study that on your own. But basically, the nation of Israel, as it is today, the modern state of Israel, is a man-made thing. And yes, it involved a lot of atrocities to other people who were living in the area, the Palestinians. And that doesn't make either side good or bad. That's It's just the point I want to make here, and I'm not taking any stand on the war, okay? Because to a large degree, I, I see that as a distraction. Not that it's insignificant, and not that people shouldn't be watching what's going on there, but it's not something to get emotionally invested in as to which side is right, because neither side is right, okay? But people confuse that by comparing it to what historically, anciently happened. When Israel originally conquered the land of Canaan, it was not an unjust conquest. It was a conquest ordered by God. And just like how we noted earlier that oftentimes God uses the enemies of his people as a means of punishing them, so in the same way he used the nation of Israel in ancient times to eradicate those who had crossed the boundary of his forbearance in the land of Canaan. They were heathens. And this verse explains it in a nutshell. And he, Manasseh, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen. In other words, according to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So who conquered the land of Canaan originally? Yeah, we say Israel conquered the land of Canaan. But no, it was the Lord who cast out those heathen nations who were practicing abomination. The Lord cast them out. He gave Israel that land, not so much on Israel's behalf. Israel, you know, didn't really deserve it. But he also gave it to them, gave that land to them as a judgment against the nations that were practicing abominations. And so when we talk, as we have in this episode, about the abomination of sodomy, don't be surprised if the Lord uses nations to punish his people, to punish what were formerly Christian nations like the United States. We're at a very serious and critical time here. But the point I wanted to make here is that there was a moral reason why God gave the land of Canaan to Israel originally. And that moral reason does not exist for the modern state of Israel. Yeah, they justify it. The Zionists justify it and try to give it moral reasons, so-called. But it's not a divine 
moral reason. And if you just look at homosexuality in Israel today, then it should be absolutely clear that the nation of Israel today has nothing to do with the moral basis for which ancient Israel was given the land of Canaan as a punishment for the abominations of the heathen nations. Modern Israel, by contrast, practices those very abominations. And that's what this chapter says Manasseh did. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And as a result, what happened? Well, this chapter goes on, and the book of Kings goes on, to tell about the ultimate captivity of Israel as a result of Manasseh's sins, of returning to the abominations of the heathen. It didn't happen in his reign. He was given a very long life, 55 years reigning in Jerusalem. He was given a lot of time to repent. God was very patient, and we can see that again today, how even though the U.S., on a national scale, embraced sodomy in 2015, God has still been patient, giving time for the nation to repent, giving time for people to vote in different leadership. But what has happened in subsequent elections all across the country, more and more and more transgender, homosexual leaders have been elected to government positions, government offices at all levels. Instead of repenting, the nation has degraded itself and degenerated even further. It says in verse 4 here about Manasseh, And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. That's like how the United States has elected these kinds of leaders to support and practice the LGBT agenda as public officers of the nation. They built altars to false idols in Jerusalem, in the nation that calls itself a Christian nation, the nation that was founded on the principles of Protestantism by those who fled the persecution of the Roman idolatrous church. They fled from England, from Germany, from all the nations of Europe, from the old world, and came and founded a new nation on Protestant principles, the United States of America. They called themselves Christians. On the money, it says, in God we trust. It was their moral standing, just like ancient Israel. It was their alignment with God that gave them the moral privilege of inhabiting a beautiful land. But now, like in the time of Manasseh, they built altars to the false gods of the very nations that they originally overcame and displaced. And you know, just as people get this concept wrong about how Israel conquered the land of others anciently and in modern times, and they don't recognize the moral aspect involved, in the same way today there's a misconception about how the Protestants conquered the United States of America from the native Indians. And it is forgotten that there was a moral principle involved. History has been rewritten so many times and recolored by people with different views to the point where it's difficult to know the real truth of the matter. It's difficult to know what really happened and whether it was justified or not. 
We have to be careful about misinterpreting history, and we have to recognize the limits of what we understand and what we don't. And that's the same reason why the Bible is often misunderstood as well. Okay, so I, I think it's important to mention those things and to, to really talk about that in this context, because those are important things. So Manasseh did many, many evil things that are recounted here in this chapter, 2 Kings 21. And the book goes on to tell the story of the kings that came after him and how God's mercy was prolonged a little longer, but he would not turn from his purpose of punishing Israel for the sins of Manasseh. And in the same way, the United States has crossed the line today in 2015 and going forward, and God will not turn from his purposes of punishment. He may prolong the time in a certain sense. You know, the fire didn't rain down directly in 2015. He gave space for her to repent, and his mercy endures in a certain way, in the form of time, but that does not change his purpose and the fact that he will punish this nation for her sins, just as he punished Israel in ancient times through the Babylonian captivity. And I just want to point out something in part of this story that in chapter 23, it mentions some of the things that Josiah did after Manasseh. He made a wholehearted repentance and did what was in his power to turn the nation back to God. And yet, as I just mentioned, God would not turn from his purposes because Israel in the time of Manasseh, had crossed the line. But one of the things that it mentions here that Josiah did in 2 Kings 23, verse 7, it says, And he brake down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the grove. So idolatrous hangings. This is interesting because it shows that sodomy had encroached all the way to the house of the Lord. And that's what we see today, especially in America, where the LGBT agenda has come even into the churches. There's no major denomination that has not been forced, obliged by tax laws, non-discriminatory tax laws to maintain their 501c3 status. There's not a major denomination in existence that hasn't bowed down to the image of the beast, to the LGBT agenda, by having transgender clergymen or whatever the case may be, to demonstrate their tolerance and their non-discrimination in order to maintain their 501c3 status. So even prior to this time, even just in these recent years, we can see how the financial system has been used to manipulate the behavior even of the churches because they are bowing down to the golden image, to the monetary system, to the financial benefits of the government. Yeah, 
I spoke about that in some of my earlier episodes. You may be interested in reviewing some of those. But what we are seeing today with the fulfillment of Revelation 13, with the emergence of CBDCs, the giving of spirit, the giving of life to the golden image, to the financial system, the spiritualization of government money, what we are seeing is that that level of control through the financial system that has brought the denominations of the Christian church to bow down to the abominations of the heathen, that same power is getting stronger, faster, more effective through central bank digital currencies. And it will extend not just to the church, but to the individual. Friends, it's time to leave the churches. Form your own groups. Leave the organizations because they are under the thumb of government control. And ultimately, just like in China, where the state has control over the churches, it's the same in America. It's just indirect. It's through the monetary system. But the control is there just the same. And under CBDCs, it's going to be just that much more effective. Okay? So come out of the churches, form home groups, Find study groups where you can study the Word of God with an open heart, without the bias of the propaganda of the governments, of the nations of the world, and of the heathen and their influences. Break down the houses of the Sodomites around the house of the Lord, like Josiah. And because he did that, God granted him to be spared from seeing the destruction of Jerusalem. We don't know that we will be spared from seeing that. But the point is that while you still have an opportunity, take that opportunity to make the right choices, to turn the direction of your life in a way that's in harmony with the Word of God and with His will. And it may be that you find grace in His sight. And His grace extends to the end of the world. You can find grace in His sight, even amidst the worst trouble and the worst time of this earth's history. With the emergence of central bank digital currencies like FedNow in the United States comes captivity. Captivity anew, just as ancient Israel fled and was delivered from the captivity of Egypt. And by the way, this is just another misunderstanding. Many people think that the Christian religion in its roots uh, through Judaism has this slave mentality because of the fact that the deliverance from slavery in Egypt is such a prominent part of the Christian story and that Jesus himself came to deliver us in the same way that God delivered Israel from the slavery of Egypt. The misunderstanding is that this makes Christianity in any way inferior because it's some kind of a religion based on a slavery mindset. The truth is that Christianity is not a religion about slavery. It's not about a slavery mindset. It's about a royal mindset. Israel was brought out of Egypt and made a nation of kings. Likewise, Christ came to deliver us from the bondage of sin so that we would rule over sin in the same way that Cain was commanded to rule over sin, but he failed. So Christianity is not a religion for slaves. It's a religion for kings. 
And everyone who understands Bitcoin and not your keys, not your coins, and the principles of individual sovereignty understands that Bitcoin is a monetary system for kings, individuals as kings, as sovereigns over their own life and the gifts that God has given them. Christianity is a religion for kings, just as Bitcoin is a money for kings. Take a listen to this clip. Shit is getting real. Like, this is what they want. If they can have Bitcoin the way that they have gold, if they can have Bitcoin the way that they have the the rest of the financial system, where everyone is custodying their wealth, their stocks, their gold with a custodian of which is completely captured and regulated by the government. And let's say shit hits the fan for whatever reason, they could just loot that said custodian. They're okay with it. They don't, they don't, they don't mind. But what's really changing here, the, 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 the pivotal moment is the fact that now for the first time in human history, you can store vast sums of wealth in your mind by memorizing 12 words. And that puts the fear of God in them. It's about royalty. It's about victory. It's about conquering evil in the heart of the individual and collectively in society. So that was a misunderstanding that I actually encountered recently in conversations. And therefore, I wanted to include that because I believe it's an important point, And that's a grave misunderstanding. There is no other religion in the world that is superior to Christianity. That's my belief that has developed more and more the more that I've studied Christianity throughout my life as a Christian. So, of course, it's a biased opinion, but that is the basis of this podcast, is that it's about studying Bitcoin in the context of Christianity from a Christian perspective. So you can't really expect anything less than for me to have that point of view. Okay, so this was an interesting episode, I think, and I hope we did an adequate job of the task that I was a little bit dreading this week of bringing into harmony the new discoveries from last week's episode to what has been fairly widely understood as the abomination of this age. Now, that's not the only abomination of this age, and there's much more to this overall Mark of the Beast issue than what we've been able to cover so far in the last two episodes. So um, don't think that vaccination is unimportant in the scheme of things here. We will come to that, but there's only so much time in each episode. So I hope that what we've covered here was meaningful, practical, relevant, and that it was a blessing for you, despite the fact that, again, this is Not necessarily a pleasant topic, but there is a silver lining in it. And that's that God gave us the revelation to warn us about the things that would happen, that are happening now. And we have this golden opportunity right now to pay attention to his word, to pay attention to the prophecies and revelation, and to recognize how they relate to the developments in the world today, to artificial intelligence, something humanity has never before had to deal with, how they relate to Bitcoin, a monetary system that the world has never before had, 
how they relate to central bank digital currencies and world government control over the masses, the new slavery. Again, something that the world has never had to deal with on a global scale before. We are living in unprecedented times, and God's word is a light to us to make it clear where we need to place our feet. The light doesn't keep you from tripping, but the light illuminates the way so that you, as a sovereign, as one who is in control of your own being, as one who is human, who has the capacity to reason, who has the capacity to empathize, and who has the capacity to choose how to respond in any given situation with any given stimulus, external or internal. You, as a human being, with the light of God's word, the light from heaven, literally also, not only from his written word, with that light, you can walk the way of righteousness without stumbling, without falling off of the narrow way that leads to life eternal. May God give you the eye salve, the vision, the clarity to see these things. That's my hope and prayer. So God be with you this week. Again, please support the podcast. Share it. You can reach me at bitcoinsermons.substack.com. Email me at bitcoinsermons at substack.com. Search for me on Noster Bitcoin Sermons. Donate to bitcoinsermons at fountain.fm. And most importantly, share Bitcoin sermons with those who can benefit from it. God bless you, and I hope to chat with you again next week. Bye-bye.